Hello everyone and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Daniel Getz, Chief Medical Officer at Providence Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington, and board certified in emergency medicine. Today we're answering your questions about summer safety. It's the season of hanging out in the heat, water, and summer sun, and we want to make sure that you know the best ways to protect yourself and your loved ones and keep you safe. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Getz. All right, well, can you start us off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your work with Providence? Yeah, certainly. My name is Dr. Dan Getz. I'm an emergency medicine physician and practiced for 13 years in the emergency department at Sacred Heart Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. And the last three years have served as the chief medical officer for our service area over the hospitals. So just a few things, nothing major. <laughs> today today we're here and we're talking about summer safety. So I think we should probably start with the, the big question, which is what's the number one thing that you see in emergency rooms strictly due to summer activities? I'm, I'm sure that there's accidents, water, heat, the whole nine yards, but what are you seeing most frequently? Yeah, you know, we, we refer to summer as trauma season. So lots of people that get on motorcycles or go mountain biking or do behaviors that maybe, uh, tempt gravity a little bit more than normal, but we certainly also see a large number of water-related injuries, people boating or on jet skis or diving-related injuries, uh, also weather-related injuries, people that have exposure to heat or even smoke in the weather as we see forest fires becoming more of an issue across the country. Well, that's actually a really good segue because I was going to ask you, what do we consider safe temperatures when we're outside? And I know it varies based on what you're doing, but when should we not even be outside? Yeah, you know, it, so a lot of this has to do with preparation. I think if you prepare yourself and you're ready for the weather, um, that you have a broader range. But when we look at warm weather related injuries, we tend to see them much more common as the temperature crests above 90 degrees Fahrenheit. Um, especially if you're out prolonged periods of time, if you're exercising, if you're out in direct sunlight, or if you're in an area of the country where you have higher humidity, that can make it even feel hotter and exacerbate the risk of heat related illness. Do you, uh, do you have any good tips for people to stay cool when it is hot outside so that we don't end up in the emergency room? Yeah, well, you know, the best one would be to stay indoors in an air-conditioned environment. <laughs> but, you know, that's not always possible. Uh, but taking measures like wearing light-colored, loose-fitting clothing if you're outside, staying hydrated. Um, you can even use things like cool, passive cooling measures, spraying yourself with a water bottle or using a, a cooling towel that you drenched in water. Uh, taking cool showers can help. Um, moderating your activity. If you're in a place uh, where there's lack of shade and you're out, uh, bring an umbrella or set up your, your area if you're, you're out enjoying the outdoors in an area with shade. Uh, but the biggest thing tends to be keeping yourself hydrated and making sure that you're limiting your exposure in really, really hot weather um, to the point where you're not stressing yourself and also limiting your physical activities to the point where you're not you're exerting yourself quite so much in the hot weather. I think it makes sense. I like what you're saying. I'm the kind of person that if it's going to be really hot, I try to get out and do my gardening and my yard work or my exercise before it gets too hot. But I think my issue for me anyway, is I don't then drink enough water when I'm outside. So what what's kind of the, the key to how much water should I be drinking when it's really hot? Or better yet, how do I know if I'm dehydrated? Yeah, you know, there's no one hard set rule for how much water to drink. It used to be you'd hear the old rule of eight glasses of eight ounces of water. So 64 ounces or pretty close to a couple liters a day. But what I think it's important to realize that depending on your activity, you may require more water than that. So making sure that when you're out and you're doing strenuous activities that you have water with you and then also 
Um, if you're sweating more, making sure that you're aware of signs of dehydration, like headache or feeling lightheaded or having a dry mouth or even producing less urine or darker urine. Those are pretty good clues that, that you might be becoming dehydrated. And I think, you know, if you feel thirsty, you're probably a little bit behind the curve. You want to stay ahead of that thirst when you're outside exerting yourself or just enjoying that sun. Um, also important to remember, some people are on medications that might increase their risk for dehydration or even increase their risk for injury from the sun. And just making sure that whatever you're doing, you're being thoughtful and respectful of, of health conditions and even age uh, and the activity level that you're, you're putting yourself under. I think you just called me old. Um, so I, one of the questions I have for you, and I was really excited to talk with you, is what's the difference between heat stroke and sunstroke? And then, and, or is there a difference? And then how do we know if we have it or what are the signs we should be looking for? Yeah, Glenn answer. And I, and I can say also, Mary, I'm, I'm in the old boat as well, so it's uh, it's okay. But, you know, heat stroke is a, is a serious, potentially life <laughs> condition um, where the body overheats so significantly that it no longer can cool itself down. And it's often a result of prolonged exposure or excessive physical exertion in high temperatures. And it, it's absolutely life-threatening emergency. It differs from being too hot and that your body's core temperature rises significantly and can damage the brain and other organs. And, and usually you see by definition, that temp of heat stroke above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. And people can have pretty significant symptoms. You can see, you know, people that become confused, they get nauseous, they start vomiting. Um, sometimes you can see them have seizures and usually preceded by hot, dry skin. Interestingly, sweating stops when people get hit, heat stroke rapid, strong pulse, that throbbing headache. Um, it's one of those things where if people are having those signs, that's where you need to call 911 and get them to a healthcare facility, a hospital, to, so we can take measures to cool them down. Well, I was going to ask you, when when is the right time to take somebody to urgent care emergency room if if we feel like they're struggling with, you know, whatever's happened in the heat? Is it, Do we have to look for those kinds of signs, like that they're not sweating or high fever? Like, when do we know when it's an emergency room versus urgent care versus just taking them inside? You know, the basic rule of thumb would be, and so heat exhaustion is that period leading up to heat stroke, and that's usually a temperature of 101 to 104 degrees. But heat exhaustion is a condition where symptoms include kind of those early symptoms of heat stroke, heavy sweating, weakness. They could be cold, pale, and clammy skin, could have a fast pulse, or, or may even feel like they're going to faint. Less severe than heat stroke, but the big difference is the body still has the ability to cool itself at that point, assuming you put it into an environment where it's able to do so. So getting people out of the sun, spraying them down with water, or putting a, a cold towel, a wet towel on them, or even putting them in a cold shower or a bath. If a patient's able to drink and they're not confused and they're not vomiting and uh, they're within that range where they're responding well to treatment, you can, you can take care of that without an emergency department. But if you're having true signs of heat stroke, confusion, um, and, and people are looking really sick, that's something you usually need the, the help of an emergency department to take care of. This is the point of the conversation where I try to get like my own one-on-one -on -one doctor question answered. I went for a run in the heat last week. I think it was a week before last maybe. And I started getting like water blisters on my skin. Is that a sign of dehydration? Boy, water blisters. Not traditionally, I would say so. Um, you know, it's usually, I don't know if you maybe you're rubbing that skin up against something. Sometimes there can be pieces of clothing that, that put a little more pressure around cuffs and things like that can do that. But it's not traditionally, I think, a, a, a blister is something that I would see. Unless it could have been sun exposure because you've got a blister from the sun. Oh, interesting. All right. We'll have to come see you sometime. <laughs> um, 
Let's let's continue the conversation though on this because I think a lot of times you know you and I are thinking about it from our own personal perspective. But what should we be watching out for the elderly, our seniors, or little kids specifically when it comes to extreme heat? Yeah, you know, extremes of age, really, really young folks and, and older folks, they just have la- less of a capacity to adapt to extreme weather conditions, including heat. So for both kids and seniors, staying in cool environments, keeping well hydrated, and again, wearing that loose fitting, light colored clothing is very important. And then monitoring them for signs of heat related illness, lethargy, confusion, physical discomfort like headache. Um, Young kids are challenging because often they can't really express themselves or advocate when they're not feeling feeling well. So sometimes it might be that early sign that their their diapers aren't as wet as you're used to, or they're not taking a bottle. Um, really important to just be understanding the fact that young folks and really really old folks they don't do well in long periods of time in the heat, and making sure that you're aware of that is the first step of preventing it. That's really good advice. I hadn't really thought about the diaper not seeing as much liquid. That's interesting. Um, what about like sunburn and sun exposure? How do we how do we best prepare our skin for being outside? Yeah, the skin. The best thing you can devo- do to avoid issues with with sunburn is to make sure that you're using a good sunscreen or actually wearing garments that protect you from the sun. I think often we forget that there's things like rash guards, these garments that you can put on when you're in long exposed exposure to direct sun to limit the sun's access to your skin. And so making sure that one, you have access to good shade, make sure that you have the right sunscreen or you're applying it multiple times throughout the day uh, or using some other way to protect the sun from the sun. Yeah, you only get one really bad uh, sunburn in the water before you wear your rash guard at all times. <laughs> I speak right, from experience. Exactly. Yeah, I did that on a, a Caribbean cruise. <laughs> yeah, oh, so did I, see, there you go. Um, what about, here's the other thing people always say though, I don't need sunscreen if I'm just gonna be in the shade or on days when it's cloudy. Is What do you think about that? Uh, both are false, you, you absolutely. When on those warm days where it's cloudy, you still up to up to roughly 80% of the sun's UV rays can penetrate through clouds and lead to sunburn and skin damage. And uh, even if you're in the shade intermittently, if you're going out in the sun, it doesn't take a whole lot of exposure to sun, especially between usually 10 a.m. and 4 p.m. when the sun rays are the strongest. So using broad spectrum sunscreen, um, wearing protective clothing, a wide brimmed hat, uh, making sure that SPF of the sunscreen is 30 or higher usually is, is the way to do it. So absolutely can still damage your skin from sun when it's it's cloudy or you're, you're staying partially in the shade. I guess I'm going to go back to the question about kids too. I know we need to be putting sunscreen on kids, but are there different kinds that we should be looking for or things that we should be looking to avoid when it comes to children's sunscreen? But I think the best bet is to buy sunscreen that's specifically marketed for children. And we usually like to see an SPF of 50. Um, you know, it's as you get above 50, there's limited difference. Um, uh, in protection, but one of the big advantages of having sunscreen that's formulated for kids, especially their face, is you can kind of get the formulations that that are no tears. And I, if you've ever had sunscreen in your eyes, it can feel a lot like being maced. And so you don't don't want to go through that. Oh yeah, <laughs> totally. I figure if I cry, the kids will probably cry, right? Right, exactly. And I have cried from that. Are there, uh, you know, you, you mentioned kind of have the right formula, like face sunscreen. Obviously, I've seen skin screen. I've seen heads. I've even seen for scalp and, and that sort of thing, which I burn the top of my scalp all the time. But is there a difference between, say, a cream versus a lotion versus a spray? Like, do you, is there something we should be looking at? You know, as long in theory, as long as you're applying them correctly, the SPF rating should be similar across the different products. But I think routinely we get in a rush and sprays are tough because often you don't have 
good visualization exactly where it goes until you have your burn the next day. And so making sure that you take a little bit of extra time to a lot to preparing yourself adequately, including putting that sunscreen on is the way to go. But the formulations should be the same. If you're going to spend a lot of time in water, there is benefits to getting the certain types of sunscreen that are more water resistant and stay on longer. But rule of thumb is probably every two hours you should be reapplying and even long and even more frequently if, you know, you, you got your kids out at the water slide park and, you know, they're running around. Or you're like me and you just sweat it off like you know, 10 minutes after you go outside. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, okay, here's the other thing that drives me crazy about summer. And I'm, I'm on the farm, so I experience it a lot. But bugs, right? There's flies, there's mosquitoes, there's all these bugs. I assume that we should be using bug spray. But then I hear things like, oh, it's not good for you. It's not good for the environment. Should you use DEET? Should you not? Talk to me about bug spray. You know, bug, bug spray is tough. You know, if you're in an area where you're, you you have a lot of mosquitoes, it's pretty tough to avoid things. I know there's there's things that you can do like citronella candles that will use a more natural way to prevent bugs. I think, you know, DEET does work, but there's always that theoretical thought of, you know, is this a chemical that I want to be exposed to? I think, though, it's such a limited exposure that we have to that, that I would probably take that over getting bitten by different insects in the environment. So I think using using uh, those bug sprays makes good sense in certain parts of the country. If you're around a still body of water that has lots of mosquitoes, uh, people can feel pretty miserable after getting bitten bunches of times. You know, we hear a lot of people say that we should look for natural options, things like citronella or lemon verbena. What are you, What are your thoughts on natural versus just buying a spray? You know, I, I think if they work great, you know, I think natural is always a better opportunity. And I think you ha if you've tolerated it well, but I, I wouldn't worry in the long run if, if in limited times I'm going to be using DEET uh, uh, or picaridin or one of those different things um, that come in creams or lotions. But I think also, you know, having those natural options makes sense. And, and maybe uh, if you have younger kids, it makes sense to use the natural stuff over the DEET. Uh, but again, it's this stuff looks to be pretty safe when it's been studied, especially in the short periods of time that we're using it. Well, since we're talking about bug bites, let's talk about other bites, especially since we're spending a lot more time outdoors and some of us are in the wilderness. What do you think about other bites, dangerous bites like spiders? How do we know when we should have something looked at? You know, it's we always worry about signs of infection. So, you know, a serious bite, it's pretty tough to, to know what actually got you. Very rarely do people see what bit them and come in with that. Um, but serious bite symptoms include severe swelling, redness, uh, pain at the area, swelling, pus or development of a rash or fever. If you notice these symptoms, it's not a bad idea maybe to seek medical attention, but it is normal to have a little bit of redness and itching and swelling. But if you start having significant pain, if you have streaking red marks past the past the area bite, uh, that would be that would be concerning. Um, wild animal bites always have someone take a look at you. You know, if you get bit by a raccoon or <laughs> or a snake, uh, please let someone uh, take a look at you with with some medical education. I'm all about self-diagnosing and medicating on small things, but if I get bit by something, I'm coming in. Yeah, um, we appreciate what, that. What about the itching? That's that's the worst part for me is when you do get bit by something and it itches. What should we be doing? Should we be applying something, taking something orally? What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, some of those topical uh, ointments that contain hydrocortisone cream or calamine lotion can help soothe itching. If it's really bothering you, you could take an antihistamine. Um, again, make sure that what you're taking, if it's over the counter, that you fit within the age range for taking it. Um, sometimes kids below a certain age, we don't like to use Benadryl. Um, also, you do have some options for antihistamines now that are non-sedating. They won't make you sleepy like Benadryl will. 
um, but those are probably the best way. Um, you know, aloe vera ointment, sometimes you can put a, a cold compress over the area to help uh, with itching also, but probably the tried and true would be the hydrocortisone cream, the calamine lotion, and, and then also uh, maybe some oral medications like antihistamines. So are you saying that's kind of the same though for bites and rashes? Yeah, you know, you can get heat rashes. What we probably see typically with rashes are either it's an exposure to some sort of what we call environmental allergen. Did you rub, rub up against a plant that you're allergic to? Did an insect bite you and you're having a little localized reaction? Um, so it really depends a little bit as far as the, the type of treatment, but the, the calamine lotion, the hydrocortisone cream, uh, the oral antihistamines can certainly help with the itching that you get associated with a kind of mild allergic reaction or localized allergic reaction to whatever you came in contact with. Um, if, you know, if, if you're going to be out on the water, and obviously we know water emergencies, you talked about trauma season, what are some basic tips you would give people to avoid ending up in the emergency department if they're going to be out on a boat or swimming, that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, water is, is one of those things where you come out and you just expect to have a great day and, and don't realize sometimes the danger that presents. I think being aware of the type of water you're on. If you're on a river, moving water with a current is very different than flat water on a lake. And, uh, you know, I think the rule of thumb when you're out on water is if you're swimming, always swim with a buddy. Um, never, ever leave children unattended near water. Um, and if they're not swimmers or poor swimmers, make sure that you have a flotation device, a life vest on them. They're, they're named life vests for very good reason. And then also if you're out, and especially if you're supervising children, you're swimming, avoid alcohol. Um, that's, that's a big risk, whether you're piloting a boat or a jet ski. Um, alcohol and water tends to lead to, to bad decisions and delayed reaction times, and sometimes just takes your eye off somebody long enough that you're supervising that it can lead to tragedy. So avoid that. Um, Again, wearing a life vest is key, um, especially if you're not a strong swimmer. And then, and also in, in case of emergency, it's probably not a bad idea to, to learn how to perform CPR if you needed to. Um, make sure you always have access to a phone or some sort of communication so you can call for help. And then also really important, I think we overlook this, is make sure that you know how to swim well and train your family to know how to swim. What do you recommend if you're on the boat and you see somebody around you who's distressed in the water? Yeah, you know, that's a that's an excellent question. The best bet to do initially is, is one, if they have a flotation device, you have some time, right? If they have that life vest, you can help pull them in. I think it's it's gut reaction initially to try and jump in and, and pull somebody out of the water, but that has some risks as well. People, especially if they're, they're near drowning, tend to panic, and it's not uncommon for them to pull the person that's trying to rescue them under as well. And so if you look at, talk to lifeguards, they're trained specifically to approach these folks from behind, put an arm over and then pull them back. But before you get to that stage, your best bet would be to throw them something to grab onto, whether you have a rope or throw them a flotation device if they don't have one. And that gives you some time to more safely get them out of the water um, and also helps that panic subside once they have something buoying them up and makes it easier to pull them out of the water. Um, but you know, being able to assess for any potential threats in the area, whether it's environmental, are there boats coming, has the patient been in an accident or the person that you're looking at is, is really, really key. Just take a moment to think before you react and, and come up with the safest solution. That's pretty good advice. You know, we talked a little bit about rivers versus lakes, even oceans. What's a safe water temperature, especially when it's really hot? We see a lot of people, especially if they don't have air conditioning, going out into the river. How do we know if it's warm enough or or, or if it's safe enough? 
Yeah, so you know, adults probably have a little bit of a different range. A, a normal, healthy adult that's probably under age 65 and above age probably 12 does pretty well with anything that's probably above 65 and a safer temp would be around 70. 70 to 85 degrees is is pretty well tolerated and I think it's also important to remember sometimes folks you know they'll they'll get into the hot tub for a while in hot weather too or, and they need to realize that you can get too high of a temperature as well that exacerbates things but a water temp of around 70 to 85 degrees 70 to 85 degrees is probably considered safe for most people but very young children those with certain health conditions may require slightly warmer water than 70 and, and you should always enter water gradually to let your body adjust to the temperature and and uh, understand how you respond and if you're in hotter environments like a hot tub probably need to limit that exposure to no more than 15 minutes at a time so you really know how you're going to react to that temperature because temperatures are heating up and we just talked about air conditioning do you have tips for people who don't have air conditioning yeah, if you don't if you don't have access to air conditioning, I think you know if you can try and spend time in public facilities that are air conditioned, especially during the hottest part of the day. Uh, good examples would be uh, your local library or a shopping mall or a grocery store. And if you can at home, if you have access to fans, you can use fans to help cool you. Uh, again, using a mist bottle, a spray bottle with a with a fan together causes some increased cooling using evaporation. Uh, cool showers are a really good way. Um, you know, I remember as a kid growing up, we had one of those plastic pools that mom and dad would throw in the backyard. And that, that was a pretty good way to stay cool intermittently. Um, and then also realize that the lowest level of your home is going to be cooler. And so uh, if you can stay on the lowest level of your home during the, the hottest part of the day, given that heat rises and that will give you a little bit of extra benefit. And then really try and avoid, you know, limit turning on things like lights and avoid, you know, baking during the heat of the day using your stove if you can. But it, it's, it's really tough. Uh, and I know there's people that are challenged um, to have access to transportation to get to some of these places. And so I think it also bespeaks that you should probably, you know, be aware of neighbors and, you know, especially seniors maybe in your neighborhood that need some help and check in on them periodically. Mm, I like that. Good advice. You know, we're right here in the midst of wildfire season again as well. We're really starting to see awful air conditions. So what would you recommend to stay safe when air is really smoky? Yeah, you know, I think it's really important first to know what the quality of your air is. And if you have access to a cell phone or the Internet, you can look at a number of different um, websites that will tell you what the air quality index is for your area. And you can use that information to tell you really what that description of air quality is in terms of what you should do as far as length of exposure or certain activity levels. But when you get into those areas where they're air quality levels are, are worse and it, it poses health risks to kind of everybody. Your best bet is to stay indoors as much as possible. Use your air conditioners with a filter, keep your windows and doors closed. And then if you have access to it, use an, an air purifier. In those situations, if you have to go outside, you should probably consider even wearing like an N95 respirator mask that we probably all have left over somewhere in the house as a result of uh, the, the pandemic, unfortunately. Um, and then also realize, you know, it's okay if you're one of those exercise addicts, you know, you can, you can probably avoid running five miles that day because you're going to do yourself more harm than good. That's a really good piece of advice because I think some people feel like, well, if I run all the time, my lungs are used to kind of being outdoors, it should be fine. But those are the days to stay in, correct? Oh, absolutely. I think people don't realize you get up some of those really, really unhealthy 
air quality index levels where you're kind of above 100 to 200. It's, uh, you know, that length of time that you're outside running could be similar particulate matter wise to smoking like 10 packs of cigarettes. So you're, you're better off protecting no your way. lungs. No uh, way. It's a huge oh, amount of particulate wow. matter. It's uh, kind of strained through the lungs when we go out into this. And so it's definitely want to protect yourself and, and limit your exposures the best strategy. Are there certain kinds of people or people who have certain conditions that should really take heed to this and stay inside? And or are there extra things they should do if say they're somebody with asthma? Yeah, you know, I think, and I hate to sound like I'm picking on little children and older adults, but again, those are usually your your highest risk patients or population. Then, you know, other conditions, women who are pregnant should take extra precautions when air quality is poor. If you do have a history of lung conditions like COPD or asthma, or even things like congestive heart failure, that poor air quality can impact you more than others. People that have bad environmental allergies should take extra precautions. But the important thing to remember is regardless of how healthy you are, you can certainly reach a point where the air quality is so bad that it's bad for everybody. I've, I've been in the uh, evacuate your house wildfires and it's, you can't even see in front of you. I can't imagine trying to go for a run in something like that. People, people are crazy. So if we do see someone struggling with breathing due to this smoky air, what would you recommend? You know, the best thing to do initially, especially if somebody's having difficulty breathing due to smoke exposure, would move to a location where they have cleaner air. Uh, if they have a history of asthma or COPD or emphysema and they have access to a rescue inhaler, um, they, they need to use that. And then ultimately, the most important thing to remember, if somebody looks like they're struggling breathing, this isn't something like we want to sit and watch for too long. Have a very low threshold for calling 911. Um, no one will ever give you grief for coming to an emergency department being short of breath or going to an urgent care of short of breath. Um, this can be a really, really big deal, especially for people with severe asthma. And we do tend to see in changes of seasons, especially in areas with high smog rates or pollution or, or forest fires, a lot of smoke in the air can lead to asthma exacerbations. And I, I think back to my career in emergency medicine, some of the sickest patients I ever cared for were patients with really severe asthma attacks in Chicago. So if you're struggling, please seek medical attention. And, and at, people with asthma uh, and COPD are really, really good at knowing when they've kind of reached that point that they need care. What about our eyes and air pollutants? If, if you're kind of getting itchy, burning eyes, what should we be doing about that? Yeah, another case where if it's starting to bother your eyes or different mucous membranes, probably in an area where you just need to get out of the smoke or that irritant. If it's a seasonal allergy thing, you know, you got a lot of pollen in the air, you might try taking um, an oral non-sedating antihistamine like Claritin, for example. Um, sometimes you can buy drops that help with, with eye irritation. Um, but if it's related to particulate matter in the air, should probably should probably go back indoors. I'm sensing a pattern of stay indoors. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, right. Um, what? Let's let's. Yeah, I know, right? Let's um let's switch to to food safety for for summers, especially when people are out there picnicking and camping or on the boats. Should avoid taking with us or things that we don't think about that maybe go bad quicker than we anticipate. Yeah, you know, non-perishable items are always a good start. So things like fruits and vegetables, hard cheeses are examples of things that, that are pretty decently resistant to spoiling in a short period of time. Um, we should probably try and avoid foods uh, that spoil quickly unless you have a way to keep them cool in a cooler with ice, such as mayonnaise-based salads, um, certain meats. 
Um, but if you can keep foods cool with ice packs, never leave them sitting out for more than probably an hour or two in hot weather um, before putting them back in a cooler environment, you should be fine. What we tend to see people that, that have food poisoning from food that's been left out, it tends to really be uh, things that have like mayonnaise and it tends to be a, a, a recipe for unfortunately getting staph or strep food poisoning. Well, since we know people are going to be outdoors, even with all of your great advice, what would you recommend for us to take with us? If you could give us the best thing to keep in our first aid kit, what would it be? You know, first aid kit one, if, if you have an allergy, an insect allergy, like to bees, for example, please don't go out without your epinephrine pen. <laughs> so have that. Um, you know, I think having things for basic wound care, if you're out, a way to clean a wound, maybe some antibiotic ointments and bandages, um, or even just a, a nice cheap first aid kit usually does a, a pretty good job. Um, if you're out in the area and you're hiking, make sure you have enough water, make sure you have sunscreen with you, um, make sure you have insect repellent if you need it, and then having a good um, means of communication such as a cell phone is important. Um, and maybe even packing something like a portable phone charger for emergencies in case your battery runs low. All right. Well, you've given us some really good advice, and I'm going to ask you if there's one thing you could tell people to either just not do this time of year or or what we should really, truly think about before we go out there to make sure we don't end up in your emergency room. What is it? Oh, boy. Well, I'll give you a handful of things. I, you know, I think if you, you think this is risky behavior, think about it first. Uh, you know, things, for example, diving into unknown water. If you don't know how deep it is, don't dive into it. You know, make sure you check how it is. Um, also, leaving children unattended near water, near pools. Kids are sneaky and they are good at escaping. So be very aware of their environment and don't let your eye off them. Make sure you take measures to make sure that they have the right flotation gear on should they get away. Um, thirdly, be really cautious consuming alcohol, especially when you're in areas and you're doing things that require more vigilance, like supervising kids. If you're driving a boat or a jet ski, do not drink. Um, and then lastly, you know, never ever leave kids or pets alone in a parked car in the hot weather, even for a few minutes. Um, just, just be really cautious of that. Those are, those are kind of things that, that pop to mind. Also, again, make sure to check on vulnerable friends or relatives, check on your neighbors during heat waves, uh, and uh, make sure that finally that you listen to your body and, and take breaks to cool down and hydrate, especially during hot weather, if you're, you're really exercising or, or performing vigorous activity. Well, I don't think we could have asked for more thorough or better advice. So thank you so much for your day. We really appreciate you joining us on Talk with a Doc. Oh, my pleasure. Glad to help. Well, thank you, Dr. Getz, for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in our future episodes. Make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health System. To learn more about our mission programs and services, visit providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.